Welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric resident here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today we'll be discussing pediatric sepsis, and I'm excited that we are joined by guests from both the pediatric intensive care and emergency medicine. Do each of y'all want to go around and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your educational background? Hello, everyone. My name is Smith and Matthew, and I am a pediatric intensivist. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Verdone, and I'm a pediatric ICU fellow here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. And I'm Dan McCollum from Emergency Medicine. Let's get started with the case. Our patient is a nine-month-old infant brought to a community emergency department with a one-day history of fever and decreased oral intake. Mom noticed worsening irritability, one episode of vomiting, and later increased worker breathing and decreased alertness that caused her to come to the ED. On arrival, the triage nurse recognized the child was ill and brought her immediately to the resuscitation room. Smitha, how would you start the evaluation of this infant? When examining an acutely ill infant, I start with the pediatric assessment triangle. Remember, this is a quick visual assessment that includes the general appearance, work of breathing, and color. It gives us a basic understanding of our patient's neurologic, respiratory, and cardiovascular status. If one or more abnormal findings are present, that suggests the child is critically ill. These patients will require a structured primary and secondary assessment to address any abnormalities and prevent further decompensation. The primary assessment is the familiar, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. The secondary assessment includes a focused history and a complete physical exam. Okay, so our patient's pediatric assessment triangle is notable for an irritable infant with increased worker breathing. Her extremities are modeled. Continuing on to the primary assessment, A for airway, the airway is patent as the infant is crying. B, she is tachypnic with clear breath sounds and saturations of 88% on room air. C, for cardiovascular, she is tachycardic with a heart rate of 140, blood pressure is 70 over 40, and capillary refill time is prolonged at 5 seconds. For D, disability, pupils are equal and she's moving all extremities. Her blood glucose is 110 milligrams per deciliter. And finally, for E, exposure, temperature is 39 degrees Celsius. Now that you have this primary assessment, Smitha, what is your next step? This infant with irritability, hypoxia, and poor perfusion is worrisome for shock. Remember that shock is basically inadequate oxygen and nutrient delivery to tissues to meet metabolic needs. There are various shock states. This child's clinical picture demonstrates compensated distributive shock, likely due to sepsis. My first interventions include, one, maintaining an airway with proper positioning, two, start oxygen support either by non-rebreathing face mask or nasal cannula, and three, obtaining IV or IO access to start the resuscitation. After addressing these concerns, we should move on to the secondary assessment. Katie, do you want to tell our listeners about the secondary assessment? Sure. The secondary assessment includes the sample history and a complete physical exam. SAMPLE is an acronym that includes S for signs and symptoms, A for allergies, M for medications, P for past medical history, L for last meal, and E is events leading up to the presentation. So let's focus in on the history for these patients in the emergency department. First, ask the caregiver about the onset of symptoms. Have things gradually worsened, or was there a sudden change today? Second, how did mom notice the fever? Did she take the temperature, or only a subjective fever? Have they used any antipyretics, such as ibuprofen or acetaminophen, that may be hiding a fever in the emergency department? Since this child has decreased alertment, find out about her level of development. Is there any history of seizures, developmental delay, or any neurologic diseases? Have the caregivers noticed other respiratory symptoms? Rhinorrhea, cough, or retractions may indicate a respiratory infection like bronchiolitis or pneumonia. 
Did the caregiver actually notice that the child was breathing harder? When was the last time the baby fed? If the baby has missed the last couple of feeds, or if GI symptoms like vomiting or diarrhea are present, then the baby is likely dehydrated and gastroenteritis may be the cause of infection. Take a careful past medical history. Was the baby premature or require a NICU stay? Does she have a history of prior infections or hospital admissions? Any history of prior urinary tract infection could put this infant at risk for another. Lastly, are vaccines up to date? Thanks, Dan. That's a lot of important points on history. How would you approach this patient's physical exam? The physical exam should be comprehensive with a careful attention to identify a site of possible infection. Meningeal signs can be worrisome for meningitis, but the exam at this age is relatively insensitive, meaning that you could easily miss meningitis if you only relied on the physical exam. Altered mental status can also be a sign of poor cerebral perfusion, commonly seen in shock. Look for signs of increased work of breathing and auscultate the chest. Crackles or wheezing could be a sign of lower airway disease. Next, the cardiovascular exam for any patient in shock is very important. Assess peripheral pulses and capillary refill time. Weak pulses or a prolonged capillary refill time can be a sign of poor perfusion to the vital organs and should be immediately addressed. Patients can also have bounding pulses and so-called flash capillary refill due to distributive shock, which is also worrisome. If you are having difficulty, using a glass slide may make it easier to measure the capillary refill time. Point-of-care ultrasound can also be very helpful here, but we can talk about that later. Remember that congenital heart disease can sometimes present later infancy and may be easily confused for septic shock. Moving on to the GI exam, note any signs of abdominal distension or masses that could point to an intra-abdominal source. Be sure to complete a thorough HEENT evaluation to evaluate for otitis or throat infections. If the patient is drooling or having difficulty with managing secretions, this could be a sign of neck infection or epiglottitis. Finish up with a head-to-toe musculoskeletal and skin exam looking for point tenderness that may be concerning for septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, or any evidence of cellulitis. Thanks. Back to our case. Mom reports fever for the past one day up to 102 degrees Fahrenheit at home. There was one episode of non-bloody, non-bilious emesis, and she has not fed well over the past day. Last wet diaper was about 12 hours ago. There are no allergies, and she takes no medications daily. Past medical history is significant for a term delivery, but she has a history of one prior urinary tract infection that required admission at two months of age. There are no known sick contacts. Physical exam is notable for a well-developed infant in moderate distress. Her fontanelle is non-bulging, and there are no focal neurologic signs. Her H-E-E-N-T exam is unremarkable. The chest is clear, there are no murmurs, but peripheral perfusion remains poor with weak pulses and prolonged capillary refill time. The abdomen is non-descendant, but there is tenderness with palpation of the lower quadrants. Musculoskeletal and skin exam is unremarkable. Smitha, what's your assessment of this patient so far? This patient with a history of fever and poor perfusion and a history of prior urinary tract infection is worrisome for sepsis due to pyelonephritis. This patient needs immediate resuscitation to address the ongoing shock. You mentioned that this patient has sepsis, but also septic shock. What's the difference? To better delineate the difference between sepsis and septic shock, it is important to recognize that sepsis is a spectrum of disease which begins with SIRS and can progress to septic shock. SIRS, which stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, is a syndrome of immune dysregulation characterized by two or more age-based abnormalities of heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, and white blood cell count. Pediatric SIRS, in contrast to adults, require the temperature or leukocyte abnormality be present. Septic shock specifically is defined as the subset with cardiovascular dysfunction, including hypotension or impaired perfusion. Okay, I think I got it. Pediatric sepsis is basically SIRS plus suspected infection, 
And septic shock is sepsis with cardiovascular dysfunction like poor perfusion. Smitha, what's the next step when you suspect the patient may be septic? We know that early identification and treatment of sepsis is critical to optimize patient outcomes. If patients have signs of septic shock, as in our case, then we should complete the initial evaluation expeditiously and start treatment with antibiotics within one hour. If there is no evidence of shock, but sepsis is still suspected, then we should expedite the evaluation, but antibiotics should be administered within three hours. The 2019 Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines can help us with our initial management. They recommend to start by obtaining a blood culture, starting empiric antibiotics, and measuring lactate if possible, followed by giving antibiotics as soon as cultures are obtained. They also recommend concomitantly obtaining IV or IO access, administering fluid boluses and vasoactive agents if indicated. Other basic labs, such as a complete blood count, metabolic panel, and urine studies as appropriate should also be considered here. Sepsis is common in critically ill children and accounts for about 8% of pediatric intensive care unit patients. Early intervention is important because otherwise many children will develop refractory shock and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. The Society of Critical Care Medicine has published an algorithm for initial resuscitation of children with sepsis that we can include in our show notes. Thanks. Moving forward, I thought it'd be helpful to highlight the new SCCM Pediatric Sepsis Guidelines focusing on the initial stabilization. Let's work through some of their recommendations, starting with lactate. We know that lactate is commonly used in adult patients to screen for cardiovascular dysfunction and sepsis, but the new SCCM guidelines said there was not enough evidence to recommend using lactate values to stratify children with suspected shock into low- or high-risk groups. Why should we care about this? Blood lactate levels may provide an indirect marker of tissue hypoperfusion and anaerobic metabolism due to organ dysfunction and sepsis. This can be due to systemic hyperperfusion, hypoxemia, or may be falsely elevated due to localized hypoperfusion at blood sampling sites. Unfortunately, there are many other causes of elevated lactate or hyperlactatemia that occur during aerobic metabolism. Albuterol is the most common drug we use that increase lactate, but epinephrine and many drugs and toxins can also increase lactate. We can include all these in our show notes. Hyperlactatemia is also seen in patients after a seizure or if there's any underlying metabolic, renal, or liver disease. In adult patients, a blood lactate level greater than 2 millimoles per liter is included in the definition of septic shock. In pediatric patients, observational studies have demonstrated an association of elevated blood lactate levels with increased mortality. Because of all of the variability, lactate should be interpreted as a part of a more comprehensive assessment of clinical status and perfusion. An elevated or rising lactate should get our attention, but remember that our septic patients can be very sick and have a normal lactate level. If we have the ability to measure repeat lactate levels, then SCCM guidelines suggest that we may trend these levels to guide the resuscitation, but this is a weak recommendation with very low quality of evidence. There is also evidence that a bedside assessment of perfusion, such as capillary refill time, may be just as helpful as a blood lactate level. The next concept that can be confusing is antibiotics. We know that we don't want to delay treatment for any patient, but thinking about stewardship, Dan, how much of a workup should we do before ordering IV antibiotics on every febrile child in the ED due to the risk of possible sepsis? Finding the septic child in a waiting room full of febrile children can be difficult, but there are some things that we can do to help narrow our focus. First, if there's evidence of shock, we should give antibiotics as soon as possible. 
Ideally, we would like to obtain cultures prior to administration of antibiotics, but administration of antibiotics should not be delayed if cultures are unable to be obtained quickly. There is evidence that delaying antibiotics in these patients with shock by more than a few hours from initial presentation may contribute to increased mortality. Therefore, in these patients, antibiotics should be administered within 60 minutes. For those patients not in shock but still have high risk of sepsis, the SCCM guidelines suggest completing an expedited evaluation before giving antibiotics. This mostly just includes history, physical exam, and focused labs or imaging if needed. The guidelines recommend giving antibiotics as soon as possible if there's evidence of sepsis associated organ dysfunction, but at least within three hours. There's concern that providing broad-spectrum antibiotics to every child that meets the definition of SERS criteria plus suspected infection will lead to antibiotic overuse, medication side effects, and antibiotic resistance that will outweigh the benefits of immediate antibiotic therapy. Remember that common complaints such as URI and otitis media may meet this definition, so use clinical judgment in otherwise well-appearing children. The take-home point is the severity of our patient's illness directs how fast we should provide empiric antibiotics. Of course, if there is obvious septic shock, then those patients should be treated aggressively. The SCCM guidelines help provide some clarity for those patients who are not critically ill on initial presentation. This gives us time to gather more information about the patient before committing the patient to IV antibiotics and, in many cases, overtreatment. Before we go and discuss therapeutics, let's review the key components to our initial diagnostic evaluation. Always review age-adjusted vital signs on every patient. Unexplained tachypnea or tachycardia is concerning and warrants further evaluation. Focus your history and physical exam on common infections such as respiratory illness, urinary tract infection, or skin infections. Be very worried about any ill-appearing child and use the pediatric assessment triangle to guide treatment, that is, general appearance, work of breathing, and color. Sepsis is two age-adjusted SERS criteria plus suspected infection. Septic shock is sepsis plus cardiac dysfunction. Interpret labs in light of the clinical picture. A single white counter lactate level isn't very helpful unless it is tied to the clinical picture. If a kid looks really sick, the labs may be normal despite critical illness. Smitha, how do you think about choosing empiric antibiotics for children with probable sepsis? Deciding what antibiotics to give can be complex, but here are some concepts to keep in mind. Choose the empiric broad-spectrum agent based on the likely pathogen. Sepsis in children is most commonly due to gram-negative or gram-positive bacteria. Invasive fungal infections are largely restricted to immunocompromised patients and preterm infants. Use your history, physical exam, labs, and imaging to guide your choices. For a child who is previously healthy and presents with community-acquired sepsis, ceftriaxone may be appropriate for monotherapy. Vancomycin should be added if there is concern for resistant gram-positives like MRSA or pneumococcus. Of course, vancomycin should not be used as monotherapy, but along with another agent covering gram-negatives. What about those patients who are immunocompromised or who become septic while in the hospital? For immunocompromised patients or hospital-acquired sepsis, resistant gram-negative infections become much more likely. There are three good empiric choices, all of which cover pseudomonas. These include cefepime, meropenem, or piperacillin tazobactam. The addition of an aminoglycoside, such as gentamicin, for additional coverage may even be appropriate depending on the clinical situation. Overall, ceftriaxone is the most common empiric antibiotic for undifferentiated sepsis in a previously healthy pediatric patient. We need to be careful to understand when ceftriaxone is not indicated. 
Our patients that are receiving chemotherapy or frequently admitted to the hospital should most likely receive pseudomonal coverage like cefepime or piperacillin tazobactam. In neonates less than four weeks of age, ceftriaxone is not the best choice due to the increased risk of kernicterus due to hyperbilirubinemia. Instead, these patients typically require ampicillin to cover for listeria in addition to broad-spectrum antibiotics like gentamicin or an advanced-generation cephalosporin. Also consider empiric acyclovir if there is a clinical concern for herpes simplex virus. Finally, remember in cases of suspected toxic shock syndrome or necrotizing fasciitis, empiric treatment should include clindamycin to limit toxin production and enhance bacterial clearance. So I want to go ahead and highlight a few differences that you might observe while treating pediatric sepsis compared to adult sepsis. It's much more common for us to throw multiple agents at adults, including very frequently using vancomycin or very broad agents such as piperacillin tazobactam, commonly known as zosin, or the use of cefepime. Children are less likely to have had recent admissions to the hospital, and so it's much less commonly needed to have more agents added. Ceftriaxone is a very reasonable agent to start with in the vast majority of septic children that aren't already critically ill or have a complicated medical history. Also be very aware of the key differences that were mentioned for neonates, particularly the fact that ceftriaxone may be causing trouble with bilirubin, as well as the need to cover for things such as herpes simplex virus with acyclovir. Thanks. So many important details here. Be sure to check out our show notes for a complete summary. Before moving on, I wanted to mention the importance of source control. Remember, if there is an infected central line, abscess, or necrotizing fasciitis, get your surgeons involved early. In these situations, patients will only improve after we remove the source of infection and ongoing inflammation. Moving forward in our initial treatment, Smitha, will you help us understand fluid resuscitation in pediatric sepsis? Fluid resuscitation is something that all emergency and ICU physicians discuss in great detail. We know that fluid resuscitation can correct hypovolemia caused by capillary leak, vasodilation, and fluid losses that are common in sepsis, and this can provide a transient improvement in hemodynamics. Because of this, fluids are typically thought of as being the first-line treatment of shock. Interestingly, fluid resuscitation in pediatric sepsis has become much more controversial in the last few years, and the SCCM guidelines reflect this. For patients in septic shock or who have sepsis-associated organ dysfunction and have access to an intensive care, the guidelines suggest giving 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid boluses up to 40 to 60 milliliters per kilogram total over the first hour, titrated to clinical markers of cardiac output like heart rate, blood pressure, capillary refill time, and urine output. Normal saline is commonly used for the initial fluid resuscitation, with lactated ringers and other balanced crystalloids being increasingly preferred. Fluids should be discontinued if signs of fluid overload develop, such as signs of pulmonary edema or hepatomegaly. Despite the wide adaptation of aggressive fluid resuscitation and sepsis, there is very little prospective evidence supporting this practice. In healthcare systems without intensive care, patients are at much higher risk from suffering side effects of aggressive fluid resuscitation. There have been no large randomized controlled trials in high-resource settings, and we largely rely on small retrospective studies that showed a correlation between IV fluid resuscitation and improved mortality. Interestingly, there is one large randomized controlled trial, the FEAST trial, of septic pediatric patients in resource-poor settings that showed an increased mortality associated with IV fluid boluses. Because the FEAST trial is the best quality evidence available, 
The SCCM guidelines recommend against the use of IV fluid boluses for normotensive pediatric patients with suspected sepsis if there is no access to intensive care. It's important to note that the FEAST trial took place in Africa, where there was no access to ICU care, so it is unknown if this data directly applies to our current practice in the United States. Now I'm really confused. Let's back up a bit. So if we have access to intensive care, we're supposed to aggressively fluid resuscitate, but if we have limited resources, then fluid boluses might be harmful? That's right. We know that IV fluid resuscitation can temporarily reverse shock. The hope is that in high-resource settings, patients can be protected from the harms of IV fluid boluses by using mechanical ventilation, diuretics, and renal replacement therapy as needed. On the other hand, in healthcare systems that don't have access to ICU level of care, there's probably more evidence that fluid boluses harm rather than help. It is unclear how to manage hypotensive patients in poor resource settings, and currently the SCCM guidelines recommend giving up to 40 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid if there is no evidence of fluid overload, but there is very limited evidence here. To finish up fluid resuscitation, Dan, do you want to mention what type of fluid you prefer to use initially? Ah, the age-old crystalloid versus colloid debate. Uh, Crystalloids, such as normal saline and lactated ringers, are what we commonly use. They're likely superior to colloids, such as albumin, for initial resuscitation of septic patients. The SCCM guidelines suggest using a balanced or buffered crystalloid as opposed to saline. Buffered crystalloids include things such as lactated ringers or plasmolite. There are some concerns that high chloride concentrations in 0.9% normal saline may contribute to higher rates of acute kidney injury, but this is not clear. We do know that large volume normal saline resuscitation will cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, and this can be prevented by using a balanced crystalloid. Saline may be more appropriate if there is known hyponatremia or severe vomiting with a metabolic alkalosis. An initial bolus with saline may be reasonable if that is what is most on hand in many clinical environments, but lactated ringers makes much more sense as you continue your resuscitation. I strongly prefer lactated ringers in the vast majority of my resuscitations. So what blood pressure target do you use to guide resuscitation? In adults, we think of targeting a mean arterial pressure above 65 millimeters of mercury. I assume you use an age-based approach. That's right. We target a blood pressure that's appropriate for the patient's age. We always want a blood pressure to be at least the 5th percentile for age. For children older than 1 month, the systolic blood pressure should be at least 70 millimeters of mercury. This is the systolic, so don't confuse this with the mean arterial pressure commonly discussed for adults. In children older than 10 years of age, a systolic blood pressure of 90 millimeters of mercury is preferred, which is similar to adults. For children less than 10 years of age, the lower limit of the systolic blood pressure can be estimated by multiplying the age of the child in years times 2 and adding 70. This can be confusing at first, so here's an example. If your patient is 5 years old, that's 5 times 2, which equals 10. Add that to 70, and you get 80. So the systolic blood pressure for a 5-year-old should be greater than 80 millimeters of mercury. Double-check your values using a Braslaw tape or trusted app on your phone. Now is not the time to make a math error. Remember that blood pressure is just one marker of cardiac output. We also need to monitor peripheral perfusion, mental status, urine output, and lactate if available. I'd also go ahead and put in a plug for ultrasound, although this is tragically understudied in the pediatric septic population. Okay, great. So that formula again is age in years times 2 plus 70 to estimate the lower limit of the systolic blood pressure. That works for up to age 10, then you can just use the adult values. Smitha, if our patient continues to be hypotensive after fluid resuscitation, what's your next step? 
The previous pediatric shock guidelines recommended using a bedside assessment of peripheral perfusion to categorize the patient as warm shock or cold shock. Warm shock is a vasodilatory distributive shock with warm extremities that is more common in septic adult patients. Cold shock is characterized by cold extremities and poor peripheral perfusion. Previously, we would give vasopressors for warm shock and inotropes for cold shock. Studies have shown that it is very difficult to reliably assess cardiac output by our exam. If you have access to point-of-care ultrasound, you can get a better idea of cardiac function, which may better direct your choice of vasoactive agents. One thing that we do know is that we should not use dopamine as our first-line vasoactive agent in septic shock, as there is good evidence saying that using dopamine increases mortality in these patients. Both epinephrine and norepinephrine are appropriate first-line agents. Remember that epinephrine acts on both alpha and beta receptors and is best used to treat poor perfusion that is due to myocardial dysfunction and low cardiac output. Norepinephrine acts mostly on peripheral alpha receptors to increase systemic vascular resistance. If cardiac function seems appropriate on exam and bedside ultrasound, then norepinephrine may be indicated. If cardiac function seems suppressed, then epinephrine might be a better choice. So, to reinforce, norepinephrine and epinephrine are the appropriate vasopressors in the vast majority of patients with pediatric septic shock. Dopamine is of the devil and honestly shouldn't be used on almost any patient in my humble opinion. Norepinephrine is probably your go-to in the vast majority of kids because they're more likely to have warm shock with preserved cardiac function. If the patient appears to be in cold shock where they have cool extremities, epinephrine is very reasonable, but to be quite honest, you could start norepinephrine while you properly load the child with fluids. If you want a single starting dose just to have in the back of your mind, starting norepinephrine at 0.05 micrograms per kilogram per minute is very reasonable, and things can be adjusted from there. Please, please, please double-check the units as different hospitals use different units and making sure that you are using a weight-based dosing strategy as you can otherwise have massive dosing errors in these kids. Thanks. That's very helpful. Is it safe to give these medications through a peripheral IV, or do we need a central line? Giving peripheral pressors is controversial. We would always prefer having central access, but this is not practical early in the resuscitation period. If needed, consider administering a dilute concentration of the initial vasoactive medication through a reliable peripheral IV until we have more definitive access as delays in therapy will likely harm the patient. You will need to work closely with your nursing staff and closely monitor the IV site for signs of extravasation. If you are lucky enough to have a clinical pharmacist, ask them to make a dilute concentration in case the IV infiltrates. Vasopressors can be given through an IO if you are unable to obtain IV access. This hasn't been well studied in children, but is likely safe through a well-placed IO. Any other thoughts before we move on from vasopressors? Remember to check an ionized calcium on your patients requiring hemodynamic support, especially small infants where the sarcoplasmic reticulum of the myocardium is not fully matured and is very reliant on calcium. Adequate calcium levels are necessary for cardiac contractility and vasomotor tone. Patients in septic shock commonly have hypocalcemia and may benefit from replacement. If you're in the community setting and don't have access to an advanced pediatric intensive care unit, don't delay the administration of vasopressors if you have a reliable intravenous access. If you can't get IV access, which is common in these shocky kids, go ahead and place an IO as this is an acceptable route while more advanced access is obtained. 
Many providers are uncomfortable placing central lines in particularly young kids, so don't delay a needed therapy if this is needed. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the respiratory management in septic patients. Smitha, how do you support these patients early in their resuscitation? If our patient responds to our initial resuscitation, then we may be able to avoid intubation. Non-invasive ventilation with high-flow nasal cannula, CPAP, or BiPAP may allow us to reduce the work of breathing and improve oxygenation. Remember that non-invasive ventilation is only appropriate for children who don't have evidence of ongoing end-organ dysfunction. These patients require close monitoring for possible worsening shock and need for intubation. So how do you decide the right time to intubate patients that don't have respiratory failure but continue to have persistent shock after our initial resuscitation? There isn't great evidence about early intubation of children with refractory septic shock that are otherwise maintaining their airway. It's reasonable to intubate these patients if they fail to respond to the initial resuscitation to reduce some of the high metabolic demand and work of breathing. This is also a way to prevent emergent intubation if the patient's condition worsens. Remember that the peri-intubation time is very high risk for decompensation, especially in patients who are intravascularly dehydrated or who are already hypotensive. The conversion to positive pressure ventilation that occurs during intubation reduces venous return to the right heart. Sedation can also worsen hemodynamics and cause further hypotension and even cardiac arrest. I want to stress the importance of resuscitating before you're intubating. If the patient has a low blood pressure, the act of intubating them may actually drop that pressure further and cause a peri-intubation arrest. Avoid this by making sure that you've adequately replaced volume as needed and that you've achieved a successful increase in the blood pressure using vasopressors if needed. It's really important to remember to do this, as many patients will actually decompensate if they're not properly taken care of in advance. Don't wait to see that drop in the blood pressure, but be proactive. It's also important to remember that you're not by yourself. If you're in the community setting, go ahead and reach out early to the pediatric intensivist before you proceed to intubate. Pediatric intensivists are great people to chat with, and they'd much rather be in the loop early than find out after the fact that you intubated a patient that they would prefer not to have had intubated. Thanks. So, Smitha, what medications do you typically use for sedation prior to intubation? The SCCM guidelines recommend using ketamine and fentanyl because of its favorable hemodynamic profile in the setting of shock, while also providing appropriate analgesia and disassociation for the intubation itself. It's important to mention that etomidate should probably not be used. There is nothing conclusive, but some evidence suggests that patients in septic shock may be at high risk of adrenal insufficiency after receiving even one dose of etomidate. Okay, so that's no to etomidate and instead use ketamine. Next, I wanted to discuss steroids. Smitha, what do you think about steroids in the setting of pediatric septic shock? Steroids are another controversial topic, and there has been a lot of variability between providers. The surviving sepsis guidelines recommend against using steroids routinely if patients respond to our initial resuscitation. There was not sufficient evidence to recommend for or against steroids for patients in refractory shock despite fluid and vasoactive support. What we do know is that if our patient was previously receiving chronic corticosteroids or has any reason to be at higher risk for adrenal failure, steroids are likely indicated. Remember, patients in adrenal failure may present with a combination of hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, but these are not required to empirically treat. Also keep in mind that a large portion of pediatric patients presenting with septic shock are chronically ill. They may have a history of an organ or stem cell transplant, malignancy, renal disease, or chronic lung disease. 
These patients are very commonly treated with course of steroids and may need additional stress dosing due to their acute illness. If you decide to give steroids, then choosing an agent with both glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid activity like hydrocortisone is a good idea. Hydrocortisone improves myocardial contractility and vascular smooth muscle tone. Well-known side effects to keep in mind include hyperglycemia and muscle weakness, as well as an increased risk of hospital-acquired infections with prolonged use. There is just no definitive evidence that steroids improve outcomes. Okay, so back to our case. Our nine-month-old patient with likely septic shock received a blood culture, IV ceftriaxone, and 40 milliliters per kilo of lactated ringers due to poor perfusion. Due to concern for developing fluid refractory shock, she was intubated and started on an epinephrine infusion prior to transfer to the pediatric intensive care. Smitha, after considering IV steroids, what's your next step in managing refractory shock? Much of these next steps are not totally evidence-based and depend on individual clinician preference and best practice guidelines. If there is continued hypotension, you can either add vasopressin or further titrate up to high-dose catecholamines. If there is evidence of persistent cardiac dysfunction, an ionodilator like milrinone or dibutamine could be trialed. Ionodilators help increase cardiac output by improving cardiac filling and reducing afterload. But be careful because this can worsen hypotension. Okay, thanks. For these very sick children, sometimes it's hard for learners to understand the attending's thought process when deciding how to increase vasoactive support, but I think this helps. As we move towards the end of our discussion, I wanted to introduce the role of ECMO in septic shock. Katie, do you want to take this? Sure. Remember that ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. This is a way to support patients who have developed either respiratory or cardiac failure. ECMO is only a supportive therapy, and it should only be used in children that are suffering from a reversible cause. In patients with septic shock, this is commonly ARDS or sepsis-induced myocardial dysfunction. The patient's physiology dictates if either VA or VV ECMO is offered. VV or venovenous ECMO can be considered in PARDS or pediatric ARDS and refractory hypoxia. In VV ECMO, deoxygenated blood is removed from the venous circulation, is oxygenated, and typically delivered back into the vena cava and right atrium. This requires our patient to have adequate heart function. In VA or venoarterial ECMO, deoxygenated blood is removed from a large vein, oxygenated, and bypasses the heart by being pumped directly into the arterial system. VA ECMO is reserved for patients with cardiac failure or in some small infants. Remember that sepsis is a hypermetabolic condition, and these patients typically require superphysiologic blood flow on ECMO, which can be difficult to achieve in some patients. Thanks. Maybe in a future episode, we'll have more time to discuss the details of ECMO management further. Dan, do you want to finish this up with some take-home points for our listeners? Absolutely. Remember to always review age-adjusted vital signs on every patient, and don't dismiss any unexplained tachypnea or tachycardia, as this may be a sign of significant illness. Be very worried about any ill-appearing child and use a structured approach to effectively care for each critically ill patient. Have a low threshold to evaluate for sepsis in any child who looks unwell. Remember that pediatric sepsis is two age-adjusted SERS criteria plus suspected infection. Use your history and exam to guide your initial resuscitation. Patients with suspected sepsis all need IV access, blood cultures, empiric antibiotics, and lactate measurement if available. Many will likely need some amount of fluid resuscitation and further support guided by your bedside exam. Remember that children may look okay, but can decompensate quickly as they run out of their physiologic reserve. Remember that hypotension is a very delayed finding in these kids. 
It is important that once you recognize a child is critically ill, to quickly get your referring pediatric intensivist on the phone to facilitate transfer. Do not delay. Thanks so much, everyone, for participating in today's episode. I think this multidisciplinary discussion will be helpful for both pediatric and emergency medicine learners. Thanks for having us, Zach. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Zach. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.